0: Now, get up, stay with go them. to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations is this going to get right? mad? Say, I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore! Who are you talking to, Herb? CGG Atlanta. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? But first, you've got to get mad! You've got to say, I am as mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore! They're yelling in Baton Rouge. God damn it! Get up, get up, get up out of your chair! Son of a bitch! We struck the mother low! Stick your head out of the window, open it, and stick your head out and keep yelling and yell. I'm as mad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore. Just get up from your chairs right now. Go to the window. Go the window. Where are you going? I don't want to see if anybody's yelling. Open it and stick your head out and yell.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of Box Office Bylines, where we are, in fact, as mad as hell that we cannot leave our houses, but we do have to take it. So here's this show about journalism movies on the radio. This week, we're talking about Network, the 1976 dramatic classic about the ins and outs of the television system, and it won four Academy Awards, and there's a lot of yelling, And oh boy, do I have much to say. I'm Tara Thorne in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I'm here with...
2: Uh, Jacob Boone in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. The YK. The YK in the NWT.
1: How are you doing, bud?
2: Uh, Well, Tara, I'm a little worried because I think we may have meddled with the primal forces of nature. How's that? Well, that's what Ned Beatty says. Oh. (laughs) Did you watch this week's assignment?
1: (laughs) Have I seen the film (laughs) just recently? I was too busy being angry about how manly it was, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, uh, uh,
2: Sorry, I was just going to apologize for the coffee sips that I may have in this episode.
1: Oh, that's very authentic. Um, I don't know if people know this about you, about how obsessed with coffee you are. And it doesn't even have to be good.
2: No, this is is Nescafe. I would say this is actually a premium instant. Uh Nescafe Gold. Um, oh,
1: Gold. Now, have you made any of the Dalgana with your <laughs> instant
2: coffee? No, I have not.
1: Not we're not there yet. I have um. No. Alright, so this was written by Patty Shayevsky, who won is the only person to have ever won three solo screenwriting Oscars. And to the point where it literally says the his screen credit is network by wow. Patty Shaevsky. It's not screenplay by, it's just by this guy. It's his. Directed by famed director Sidney Lumet.
2: Mm-hmm. Big
1: seventies movie starring Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Robert Duvall, Ned Beatty's in there.
2: And of course Peter Finch.
1: Yes. Peter Finch. Who We all know. So this is about um this is about TV. So Patty Shaevsky started out as a playwright and um, you know, moved into movies. And apparently, did not have a great time trying to break into television.
2: <laughs> can I can so, we can I backtrack yes. a little? Like, had you seen Network before this?
1: I hadn't. I knew Matt as Hell. Um, as we all, everyone did. Sort of, yeah, everyone sort of knows that. Um, I hadn't seen it for whatever reason. I, my film history actually isn't that great. If it existed before I was alive, <laughs> there's a good chance I haven't seen it. It's one of the reasons I missed the Oxford Theater here in Halifax because they used to oh, show. Yeah. Old timey classics, and that's how I saw Casablanca and and uh, Singing in the Rain and a bunch of stuff. Um, so no, I haven't seen. I had not seen it uh, until Friday night. How about you?
2: I am surprised that I had not either. I um, really like Sidney Lumet as a director. Um, I was a big fan of Twelve Angry Men and Dog Day Afternoon, and this is about journalism, kind of. So I'm, and it's famous. So I'm very surprised. Nowhere along the way did I make a choice to see this? I feel like maybe because of how often it's talked about and how many times that one scene is quoted, some part of me was like, well, I get the gist. <laughs> it's been passed along via pop culture. I don't need to... I've seen the parody versions. I'm not sure if I need to jump in on the on the actual. Um, yeah, I hadn't seen it, and so we both watched it, I think, Friday night.
1: Yeah. Some Friday night. Every day's Friday night. Every day's Friday and every day Sunday is how I feel, um, because you can drink any day you want, uh, but also that the was, next day's horrible. That was true before. True, yeah. yeah. But there's less, <laughs> there's less holding you to there's, the, you know, the sure. fallout. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, the story is we're meeting this guy named Howard Beale, who is played by Peter Finch, and he gets fired because the rate, the ratings have dropped. Um, and then he makes the mad as hell speech and he becomes this huge sensation and they give him his own show where he rants mm-hmm. and um, and that uh, begins to sort of take over the nation. And Faye Dunaway plays Faye Dunaway cast as the villain here. She plays Diana, who is the television executive who just is trying to get ratings. She's just she only cares about work. And she ends up having an affair with Max Schumacher, who is the producer. Is he the producer? Yep. Yeah, he's the producer, and um, and he has a wife. We'll get to that. Um, but he he's a lot older than her. So he he sort of she shoves him in. He keeps calling himself middle aged, even though William Holden was fifty nine when he filmed this movie and literally did not live to see it. So <laughs>
2: no, that's Peter Finch. Peter Finch died before. Okay,
1: all right. William Holden is still in his knocking I, on sixty, calling himself middle aged to a thirty five year old a woman.
2: Hard fifty nine when you look at his face.
1: Yeah. <laughs> really he, leaned he into it. He has lived. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So. Um, yeah, basically, and it's just about the degradation of these people's souls as, mm-hmm. you know, they're, ju- they're just trying to get ratings. And there's this weird narration device that only pops up when needed. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like, you know, the whole thing about movies is show don't tell. We get that. But I, I find the narration, it felt like maybe it didn't exist, and then they realized that some things were unclear, and they added it later, but again, Patty Shaevsky, I saw I saw a, a Wikipedia reference to this movie <laughs> that that c- it's considered the greatest script of the 20th century. I don't know about that. What do you think what? about that? What about
2: yeah, um, Tootsie? There
1: was no citation. I'll say that. Okay. What about a lot of things?
2: <laughs> I don't um, know. I kind of liked the narration because it did remind me of like a newscaster, sort of doing narration. It was a little. I would say like much of the movie it was a little too in love with its own writing. Um and I also the voice, I'm not sure if he was the same announcer from the A team, but it reminded me of that guy's <laughs> voice.
1: So, it was very jokey. It was like bah, bah, bah.
2: but in a very serious sort of deadpan um what's that guy who did unsolved mysteries, Robert Stack? Oh yeah, it yeah. It kind of had that vibe. Like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't mind the ne- there was also so little of it. As you said, it kind of, it was weird when it popped in during the middle of the movie. Because as bookends, it would make, you you wouldn't bat an eye. But occasionally it's like, oh, was there supposed to be more of this?
1: Yeah, but at one point, Faye Dunaway goes to L.A. And they're like, Faye Dunaway has gone to Los Angeles. It's like, (laughs) okay, you could have just showed the sun. I don't know. Um, But yes, okay, so I'm conflicted about a few things. Because this is, it's incredibly well written. It really is. It's written Mm -hmm. like a play. It is, you know, it really feels like a stage play. Um, everyone's sort of always giving these big speeches, and they're incredibly well written, and everyone's very smart. Too smart, um, but it's also very much a product of its time. It's about a man whose worth is wrapped up in his job, and when that is taken away from him, he literally threatens to kill himself on the air. So yeah. that's where we start uh, with Howard Beale. And then when we move into the affair portion of the film, Max basically blames Diana for him leaving his wife. Mm-hmm. And then when she breaks up with him, he's like, bah, I'll just go back to my wife. And, uh, and basically uh, tells her she's too much like a man and she only cares about work and she's a terrible person. I'm the, just like, I think we're all terrible here.
2: The breakup scene is particularly bad
1: it's super fucked she breaks up with him she's like set she packs his suitcase Mm -hmm. hands it to him and he's like okay i'm gonna leave and then she goes into the kitchen and has a change of heart i don't know from where and then he it turns around and gives he gives her a big speech oh yeah and she and she asks him not to leave i'm like when did this happen
2: calls her the most dehumanizing, like talking about how she's indifferent to suffering and insensitive to joy and all of this like that one I don't know if it's in that scene, but they call her television incarnate. Um like taking out all of the writer's frustrations on TV onto this one female character. I guess there's a second. Um
1: there's a second, but she's not treated that well either. We could get and, to that in a sec.
2: And then Faye responds with I forget it, but it was some reference to like his 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 uh cocksmanship in bed.
1: Yes. She tells him that he's a bad fuck, basically. And he's sorry. And censors. he's like,
2: why do women always think men care about that? As if yeah, that's the worst you, you could, could... And it's like, yeah, why why would women assume <laughs> men <laughs> Uh do you remember when they first go out to dinner? Uh when she's like trying to seduce him or whatever, because she like schedules meetings late at night. And, like, that's all weird and odd, too. But they go to dinner, and she talks about how all her previous boyfriends don't like her because she's too masculine in bed. Which Yeah, she
1: bangs like a man.
2: Which means, like, she orgasms quickly and then, like, quickly gets dressed and wants to leave. And she's like, men are intimidated by that. And this geriatric senior is like, well.
1: (laughs) Here in my middle age, I find it challenging. And later, there's a horrific sex scene where... It, it was just horrific. <laughs> it's not horrific. It's just like horrific to watch. They they go on this little vacation because he's still with his wife at this point. So they're, they're going on a cheater's vacation. And she's just talking, talking, talking about the network schedule. And then they have sex. He doesn't say a word. She's on top and she like gets off on her own scheduling prowess. And he yeah. says nothing. Her di- and I hated it.
2: <laughs> her I hated it. Apparently, I, I read William Holden had reservations about that scene. Um, not because of the Rightfully. dialogue, but because um as as he says, such scenes are not to my liking. I believe lovemaking is a private thing and don't enjoy depictions of it on the screen.
1: Spoken like a sixty year old <laughs> man.
2: Um <laughs> Faye Dunaway's character, I mean, everyone I don't know. How do you feel like praised in its reception? She won an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh I would say not a career defining, but like certainly in the the story of Faye Dunaway, one of the big movies and roles people bring up. And she definitely brought a lot to it. And yet it seems more of a, just her character is a way for the writer to vent his frustrations and a way for other characters to tell someone they're bad and wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely, she's fully the villain. She's like, I feel like she was a man at first and then he switched it so Mm. he could put in the affair. Like there's, I I just, (laughs) it's like, cool. This woman, she has so many lines, but she's not three dimensional. Her dimension is she's obsessed with work. She's ambitious. And like another journalism movie we could talk about a different time. Richard Jewell also punished. It's one female character. Well, there's two in that as well. Literally screams in her is screamed in her face that she's ambitious. Like this is a bad thing for women to be, even in the '70s. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, these guys, uh, Howard Beale and and uh, you know Max Schumacher, they're they're like talking about when they used to work with Edward R. Murrow in the '50s. <laughs> and it's like, come on, do- like I'm sorry, <laughs> you're she's the villain and like he he makes this big speech at one point where he's like every guy that retires max makes this speech you know every guy that re- retires writes a book about the good old days yeah i don't want to do that and it's like yeah well that but that's that's your life that's what you've that's who you've become and you've got this young girlfriend because you're trying to make yourself feel young i don't know i just feel like Faye Dunaway did an amazing job with a really two-dimensional character. And, um, you know, they make her scream a lot. They make her seem very um, ruthless mm-hmm. and um, uh, unforgiving and not empathetic. And I I was behind her all the way because I was like, good for you. Raising <laughs> to the top. She's not afraid of any of these people. There's never yeah. a... You know, Robert Duvall's screaming all the time. There's never, never a scene where she's intimidate, intimidated by anybody, uh, which, which I really appreciated.
2: Which does make that breakup scene all the worse, because suddenly she seems to care and give a shit. Yeah. Whereas if she, and it and, and quickly snaps back out of that, and she describes, like, I don't know. It, it was just a way to punish her character for, like, being corporate.
1: It really was, and, and it just, yeah, and for punishing her for, you know, ending this inevitably doomed thing <laughs> um, because there's nothing in the movie that leads, to, uh, that leads to this revelation of hers where she's like, oh, I'm making a mistake. It's like, no, you packed his bag before he got there. Like, you thought about it, yeah. and there's nothing he does or says that would change that choice. Um, yet he needed they wanted to give him a big speech on his way out of this relationship. And by the way, I believe that the woman who played his wife won a supporting actress she actor did. for one scene. Yeah she, um, uh, Oscar sorry
2: can uh, she holds the record for uh, the shortest performance to win an Oscar.
1: And I think that scene is terrible. I really do now oh, okay. there's a
2: certain
1: there's a certain way people acted in the 70s and this movie's a good. Like, actual acting techniques, not that I oh, know okay. anything about it. I just know what I like or don't like.
2: Can you, can you expand <laughs> like on our, that?
1: I don't know. Um, but her whole scene is just hysterically yelling because her dumbass husband's like, oh, I'm going to go shack up with this 35-year-old woman. Bye. Um, and she just sort of screams at him, and I thought it was way over the top.
2: I, I thought that was a, a decent scene, particularly okay. because... Uh, the actress whose name i don't have and that bothers me
1: i know i'm like scrolling imdb uh-huh. um
2: like i thought she she again the writing very good and called out a lot of the bullshit It sort of like grounded the affair storyline a bit because like okay here's here's this character who can who's uh speaking some of the truth of what's happening and how he's just an old man who wants some young pretty thing for one last fling before he like settles down to die <laughs> Um, I read that Sidney Lumet, like, dre- I guess Patty was on set for almost all the movie and was very, like, involved in direction, and on that, that particular scene, Sidney told him that he had it because he's like, I've I've had a lot more experience with divorce than you, let me handle this one. <laughs> uh,
1: the, his wife's name was Beatrice Strait, was yes. the actor who played her, yeah, um... That's So, Patty Shoyevsky, by the way, if you um, – I recommend a show called Fosse Verdon, which wow. was on FX last year, starring Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. And Michelle Williams won definitely the Golden Globe, maybe an Emmy for that. And um, so they played real life Bob, Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon, who are, are theater people, so I do need to flag that as well. They're very dramatic. Um, but Patty was a sort of – he was Bob Fosse's BFF, so mm-hmm. – He's in the movie, he, he's in the show as who, a supporting character. And him. they both seem like twats. Norman somebody, some I've never, I didn't know him before. No. We're doing really great of informing people of <laughs> the ba- basic <laughs> details.
2: Um, what else should we talk about in the movie? The mad as hell speech. Um, That's the famous, everybody loves and knows Peter Finch's mad as hell and not going to take it anymore speech. Your thoughts yeah, but I that? feel like
1: a lot of things, like um, um, everything's coming at Millhouse. No one knows what's happened before.
2: Right. No, I don't understand <laughs> that, actually. <Can>
1: <laughs> it's fine. Um, by the way, Padyshevsky in in, Fo- in verdon played by Norbert Leo Butz. Sorry, oh. that name didn't stick in my head. I wonder why. Um <laughs> Yes, this speech. So basically, this is his, his moment where he snaps. They've talked him out of killing himself they're taking Mm -hmm. him off the air a week earlier and uh he flips out and sort of incites this mini revolution in america
2: yeah the public mass it um panic riot they don't riot they just yell
1: yeah i but here's the thing about it so
2: Uh
1: he he implores people as in the clip that you heard to go to the window yes and scream it Yes. Like and they and they, they call around to all their affiliates. So like are people screaming? Are people screaming in Atlanta? Are people screaming here? <laughs> what we don't see in the movie uh-huh. is real life fallout to this. It's like, okay, this gets him a show that's very popular, like sixty million Americans are watching it a night or whatever. But you don't hear about its real life impact other than it's popular. It's like you're mad as hell, so what are you doing?
2: Yeah. They're, that's they're, one thing that I thought was lacking. Show. Okay, well, yeah. um, before I get into one point, I just want to say there's way too much dialogue in the script about ratings and, like, ratings jargon. Yeah, that, 60
1: share, 40 share. Yeah, like, like, no one he, knows what He that might means. drop yeah. below
2: a 40 share, and you're like, I guess that's bad <laughs> based <laughs> on how they're saying it. <laughs> um, One thing that I also don't like is... I guess it's sort of like it shows how, or it tries to show Patty, who's I guess not a fan of institutions and systems of power, um, definitely has an Despite being awarded over
1: and over by them, but
2: go on. Um, He likes to show how ideals are quickly corrupted by corporate influence. So the whole subplot about the ecumenical liberation army, which is just a whole... Even though Patty Hearst and the, what is it, the Simbanese Liberation mm-hmm. Army, they're in it mm-hmm. as characters, but this is a separate group of, of commie radicals that kidnap Anaris. Um They, like, get offered a show, and instantly they're, like, negotiating the distribution rights and are angry that they're going to lose out on points. And it's supposed to, I think, be satire about, look how quickly the communists will fold once they, they get a paycheck. Yeah. And, and
1: also, we yeah. should point out they're African American, so it's more like they're Black Panthers.
2: Yeah. yeah, well, it's
1: really tone deaf for now, and the <laughs> end, which we'll get to.
2: Um, and the same thing happens with with uh, what's his face with um, Beale, where like he he's mad as hell and rants, and so they give him a bigger show, and and the audience that was angry and yelling at their windows, they just go to the show and they just chant it when he like appears on stage, and that. I'm almost fine with because that does seem very proficient in terms of uh, – proficient is not the right word. Prescient? Yes. In terms of how, uh, 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 you know, you, you might have this demagogue character telling people to get mad from the TV, and usually they'll just go sign up for the Facebook page or rant. Like, it doesn't usually produce a lot of change in the real world.
1: Definitely. Although, consider that there were no twenty-four hour news networks at this time. CNN literally didn't exist. Yes. So, to 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 have that many people watching your show nightly was actually a huge accomplishment. It was like going viral. Now, um, context is so funny, isn't it? As as we discuss these older movies.
2: Tone is set very early on by the first scene, when uh, Beale and his producer are getting rip roaring drunk because he's going to get fired, and they're talking about the grand old days of journalism and telling stories about like suicides off a bridge. And there's a there's a joke when when a TV executive is like pitching new shows to Faye Dunaway's character, and they all feature the same kind of crusty archetypes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's like a, tank, a crusty but benign old ex, police captain, whatever. And this is really a movie for like crusty but benign old journalists who are mad as hell, I guess. it's it's. It also feels of the 70s in that it's like very angry about what they're mad at hell about is as hell about is like oil prices and urban crime that doesn't really affect them. They just hear about it on the news that people are getting murdered. And also masculine women holding authority over them. Like, that's that's what's upsetting the natural balance.
1: (laughs) Even though I will, the one thing I will give her props for, it's heavily implied, but no one says that bitch or um, implies that Faye Dunaway uh, slipped her way to the top or otherwise doesn't deserve her job. They don't say it. True. Which is kind of shocking for the time. And for today's time, frankly. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, we neither of us was alive then, so yeah. I'm trying to think of what would have changed. I guess television as a medium became the medium. You know, yeah. there was theater, and then that gave way, you know, in New York anyway, there's theater. Film, these were like the capital A arts. And yeah. then TV comes along with Archie Bunker and the Fonz and all these dorks. Yeah. these anti-intellectuals and they hate that. Even though that's not what they're yelling about in this. It's It's it, like television as a medium is is beneath everybody.
2: It's it's definitely seems to be more upset with TV than it is about the state of journalism. Cuz we kind of quickly veer away from that into news as entertainment, which turned out to be prophetic, I guess, in that, you know, it was anticipating Fox News and Glenn Beck and all the sort of demagogues that come up and get people to sit in the studio audience and cheer them on. I think the fatal flaw is it assumes like a populist madman on TV would end up going against global corporate agendas and have to be neutered um, when in fact he could be the very embodiment of those agendas and whether he's lying or Telling people that these companies are great, audiences will eat it up, even if he's, say, president of the United States.
1: For instance, <laughs> <laughs> there's also a very weird thing that happens um, that kind of pivots us into the ending. It's not weird, but it felt insensitive. Uh, where the Arabs, and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. um, there's sort of uh, a, a Middle Eastern interest. In the American government, and this all spir- spirals out of co- is what spirals out of control. It has to do with like they they buy they're buying up things.
2: There's in a America. Saudi Arabian conglomerate that's buying the conglomerate that owns the TV station where Howard Buell works, and this is in the middle of like OPEC oil price crisis, you know, um, and America being upset that foreign nations can dictate what their gas is going to be.
1: Exactly. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it were 10 years later it would have been the Russians. So you see how these things yeah. cycle through.
2: And definitely like post Watergate, right? When was Watergate? 76. Watergate
1: yeah. was 77. No, this was before.
2: Um, oh this was before. All right, my bad. Um, but like, you know, that sort of 70s like there's there's a there's a higher power that's controlling everything and you, the man on the street, you have no power anymore in this world. And what are you going to do about it? And uh you know, a different film would be like Dirty Harry where a guy or Death Wish where they take a gun and shoot people and hear the television anchor just yells and folks yell back.
1: They do yell back.
2: There's a lot of anger in the 70s.
1: There's a ton of anger and a ton of yelling. Speaking of yelling, I want to throw to a clip. This is a famous scene from the film. Ned Beatty (laughs)
2: calls
0: Howard
1: Bealing.
2: Oh, I love this scene.
1: And uh, he tells him
0: what's what. You have medals! the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international
3: system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the
0: natural order of things today. That is the atomic... And subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through
3: to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and at and and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their Councils of State, Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price, cost, probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world Which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit, in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale.
1: All right. America the world is a corporation. Deal with it.
2: Ned baby, Deal with it, man. Howard Beale. <laughs> Love that scene. That that's I that's a better speech than the Mad as Hell. I'd rather watch it. I holiday. agree.
1: And it's shot from a very cool angle oh, it's so where good. Yeah. from the bottom, so he's like looming over this row of I think lamps or chairs yeah, or something. In a dark board and, room. And um you know howard beale feels as small as he's ever felt in his life and
2: beale looks like he's seen like a vengeful god yeah it's great if the whole movie had that sort of uh weird dynamic it'd be a lot more interesting beale kind of gets for all the praise peter finch gets um and and how central beale's character is he kind of gets lost he's he like does his rants but it's not his movie it's it's well, is, I guess, and Dunaway's yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's Schumacher
1: yeah, Max Schumacher. And you know, I also think you know, William Holden, I guess, is a is a golden era star who was, you know, on his way down uh oh. due to due to age, not like decline in performance like De Niro or something. Um you know, so it, it was his movie but I find they look alike so for a long time it took me a while to know who was who because mm-hmm. they're almost the same age and they both you know have dark hair and and uh, uh, look like stars from the 50s <laughs> so I found it confusing to know who was who and only when <laughs> there are cameras pointing at Howard Beale did I figure it out I, I would th- just say
2: that if it was said in the 60s or 80s you probably could have gotten away with like putting them in different colored trench coats but in the 70s, like, <laughs> professional men, they only had, like, one color of suit they could wear.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so should we talk about the ending? I'm sorry, you cannot spoil a movie from 1976. You just can't. Um, so if you don't want to know the ending of Network, please stop now. Um, Turn
2: off your radio or podcast.
1: Press space bar right now. <laughs> um, because I do want to talk about the ending, which I'm sure when it happened was incredibly shocking. Um... And I think now doesn't it hits different, as the kids say.
2: <laughs> what happens in the ending, Tara?
1: So basically, they decide to orchestrate Howard Beale's live murder. So a nice callback to him threatening to commit suicide live on the air, mm-hmm. uh, which happens at the beginning. But he does this whole he he exposes this Saudi Arabian investment in America, and everyone's mad. Yeah. Um, so they're like, okay, we're going to take him out. And there's no, this no, 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 no,
2: That's not why they take him out though. Why is it? Cause he's, he totally buys Ned Beatty's speech. He's like, oh yeah. Okay. Corporate. Oh, speech. right. He
1: switched back. He goes and, back. And
2: that's not like as exciting for like that drops the ratings, which I find. That's it does the,
1: drop the ratings. You're right. He's like, I'm not doing this shit anymore. And that's the okay. incorrect
2: part that like people wouldn't still buy in and the audiences right. wouldn't be huge. They just want like a clown yelling at them it doesn't matter if it's and if it's telling them like yeah go buy gas you're great they're like okay i'm doing what i should in the world awesome (laughs) Mm -hmm. but because the ratings fall even though he's saying what the corporate overlords want that's why they decide to kill him
1: yeah you're right okay so that happens they have this very solemn meeting where they're like the network can't be implicated here's the bizarre part so what they decide to do is uh use the what what
2: was the army called Uh, The Ecumenical Liberation Army.
1: Yes. So they decide to make two black people Uh kill him. Now, here's the weird thing. We do not see a negotiation of this. We do not see them being convinced or paid or anything. It's just like, we're going to ask these guys to do it. Yeah. We cut to it. They do it. And the movie ends. Sure. So I feel... (laughs) It's a long movie, and I feel we're hours. missing some context for why the, why on the earth they would ever agree to it. Now, they do say the leader got away. Um, yeah. So then what happens is he gives this little speech. I think he's barely started talking. They Two of them stand up, and they shoot him in the head and the chest. Pa-pow. He falls down.
2: Yep. He falls dead.
1: Uh He's dead, bleeding everywhere. And then, like the movie opened, it closes with a bunch of different screens. Good Mm -hmm. ad for Canada Dry in there.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: And basically shows the news of this literal live murder, this snuff film, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's being drowned out by all the other stations and the ads and the noise. And I'm sure, I am sure, at the time, it was an incredible statement. (laughs) However here in 2020. Uh-huh. I feel if if
2: go I, off, Tara.
1: I don't have really anything to go off with other than the pushing these two people of color into being murderers and they're fine with it and that's how it happens. It's like I just feel like they could have I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if there was some psycho fan or he had this little fan base of people that did whatever he wanted, mm-hmm. they could have tricked one of those guys into doing it. It just felt very like he knew how he wanted it. He knew he wanted it to end. Shevsky knew he wanted Howard able to die on camera. Yeah. And then he, how he got there was sort of, he, it felt slapped together.
2: Like a whodunit. He worked backwards. <laughs>
1: yes. Like a detective story. <laughs>
2: Way to go, Patty! What did you
1: think? Yeah, what did you think of the ending?
2: Um, you know, it it's fine. It it ends. How else, it? it how else are you gonna end it? Yeah, we'll get him killed. It kind of like once he once he Ned Beatty wins him over, I don't know. It, and and the, the romance subplot ends. It's like, well, we're kind of done.
1: Yeah, we're is gonna go? Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's like, uh, let's murder him. It's like, all right. Sure.
1: Okay, well, we're both sort of underwhelmed. And I mean, we do have... The movie has the benefit of being um, of its time, and we don't have that time, where it's like... We, we are of oh, our own time. We're of our own time, where it's like, oh, television in the, is bad. Too mm-hmm. much noise is bad. You yeah. don't say, Academy um, Award winner.
2: Say network. Have you heard of a thing called The Wire? Yeah. <laughs> The Sopranos <laughs> keep telling me television is bad. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so there is that. Um, do you think it holds up as as a great film of the 20th century?
2: Who, yes. Um, the writing's good. The performances, by and large, are good, and I think it has such a relevance to its time, which makes it difficult to watch elsewise last week we talked about between the lines which is very much of the 70s and yet because it uh you know it, it feels a little more timeless which i think makes it easier to get into whereas this feels man it it
1: it would have been like seeing vice in 2018 or whatever you know they that reference dick that dick one, cheney <clears> movie
2: they reference the t- popular tv shows that week like by name they're like all in the family was number one and it's like that that's a way to grind your movie like completely keep it in yeah. its time frame um so that makes it maybe more difficult to appreciate out of that time but seem to everyone else seemed to love it in the 70s so i'll let them have it
1: and it's definitely a like New York intellectual type of movie, oh, yeah. and I could s- yeah, like you can see why critics loved it. You can see why it won Oscars. Liberal elites hashtag oh my God
2: George, Clooney's you know, love this kind of shit. Thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they would ever make something like this remake Network, but like with the internet or something.
2: Well, it's funny you ask, because in 2005, George Clooney himself. Was trying to uh, adapt it for a live television project, whatever. Remember when he was starring doing starring himself? Uh, I'm sure he would have had some like dignified, smaller role because it's not about him.
1: Yes, Clooney noted, noted selfless mm. performer. Uh, uh, he did make a really great m- journalism movie, though. He did you did. remember that one.
2: Yeah, good night. And good good luck. night and good luck. We'll get to that. Yeah,
1: it's a good one. We um,
2: so, in preparation, he screened the film for a group of teens and young adults. Uh, and he found to his shock and horror that none of the young people recognized the film as satire. And oh. All right, I guess.
1: Well, yeah. It's satirical. I wouldn't say here's satire, a piece of satire.
2: Uh, Again, well, I, without it, the
1: narration, is but, there any satire at all?
2: In the time before Fox News comes around, sure. Maybe when like you're only used to Edward R. Murrow, it's like, news as entertainment what are you talking about patty you've lost it <laughs> but now it's like yeah a lot of the stuff happens it's it's like any sort of film that tries to maybe be satirical if that stuff happens that does kind of take the ed- edge away from it because we're living in that society now and i don't know sorry the teens aren't going to flock to network screenings
1: yeah even if even if selena gomez is
2: playing diana Selena Gomez should play uh, Howard (laughs) Beale.
1: Let's flip all the genders. (laughs) So there's only one man in it. I would like that, actually. All right. Now, Jacob, I know you have some trivia.
2: Oh, you bet I do. Uh, And I'm
1: excited to hear it.
2: So Dunaway met with and based her character in part on Lynn Bolin. I hope I'm saying that right. Who was the first vice president of a TV network, NBC, in the 70s. Very cool. Uh, she famously commissioned Wheel of Fortune because ratings for Jeopardy were declining, and she wanted to like change Jeopardy so the viewership would be more, get more women interested in watching it. Because I guess only men watched Jeopardy at the time, and they wouldn't let her do that. Well, so. only
1: men know things.
2: Sure, yeah, but women know vowels. <laughs> letters.
1: <laughs> women can spell, <laughs> but men know how to put the facts together. So also, she pitched Wheel yes. of Fortune.
2: Sorry, just to finish. She pitched Wheel of Fortune and they, like her job was on the line. If it didn't succeed immediately, she was going to be fired.
1: Wow. Well, that worked out. Yeah. I want to say we never said what the network was called because it's a fake one. It's called UBS.
2: Ha ha ha.
1: United Broadcasting System?
2: Oh, yeah. Or
1: Uppity BS? What is it? Bullshit? I don't I know. I think it's anyway.
2: United Broadcasting System or something. But isn't it a fun little play on... UBS. How they bullshit? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, continue um, with your trivia.
2: The on-air murder of Howard Beale was inspired by the real-life on-air suicide of anchorwoman Christine Chubbuck.
1: I th- I knew it was. I didn't realize it was a woman. I knew there was a real one.
2: Yeah, and there were a couple films made about that incident in the last few years, oh. which I think is we might get to someday. Sidney Lumet openly admitted that he was furious to have the picture lose to Rocky for Best Picture.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, Sylvester Stallone's an Oscar winner because of Rocky.
2: Rocky's a better movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rocky's an incredible movie and deserved that win. So, like, man, wow. Network wow. is like Crash compared to... Crash! Rock- <laughs> like, just just in love with itself. And here's Rocky, this like really heartfelt... Scrappy little... Scrappy yeah. little boxing movie. Yeah, no, 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 no. That, that was the right call, Academy. Uh, Peter Finch <laughs> died before same said Academy Awards. I
1: knew, I knew that. Um,
2: but he won, making him the first performer ever to receive a posthumous award at the Oscars. Do you know who and the second was?
1: Heath Ledger.
2: Heath Ledger, one of two men who's won for portraying the Joker, famous Just won. Batman villain.
1: <laughs> I've heard of him. I think.
2: Uh, Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor, I don't know John Chancellor, were approached for the Howard Buell role, but neither was interested, though Cronkite's daughter, Kathy Cronkite, plays the left wing radical Mary Ann Gifford, the sort of Patty Hearst stand in.
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. There are really no other female roles of note to speak of in this movie other oh, than
2: Diana. Faye Dunaway and the wife. Uh, well, and okay. The, and the, again,
1: the wife is literally one scene.
2: The Ecumenical Liberation Army's. Uh, or she's not, I guess, a part of it, but she kind of is the, like, communist president of America uh, who denies having ties to the group but then immediately goes, tells them, like, we're going to be on TV. Right. Um, Which the leader of the army, I forget the actor's name, it's the characters, like, the great Ahmed Khan or something, um, there's literally at one point where they have the, like, communist, radical left, black characters sitting around eating KFC. Yeah. And I'm sure it's supposed to be like, see how they don't actually have values. They like our our corporate chicken, but it's not great. Patty
1: optically. (laughs) It's really not.
2: Apparently that actor was a vegetarian, but they still wanted to eat the chicken. So he just like put paper towels in his mouth and pretended to be chewing. Wow. Anyway, um, Aaron Sorkin, you know him. I've heard of him. Claims that Patty's, uh, well, Patty himself, and particularly his script, were a major inspiration for his own writing. He said, no predictor of the future, not even George Orwell, has ever been as right as Chayefsky was when he wrote Network.
1: I bet he feels that way about himself and the social <laughs> network.
2: Really, the spiritual, S- like, successor yeah. is the newsroom.
1: True. But Sorkin, famously fan of himself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very self confident.
2: Uh Jimmy Stewart turned down the Howard Buell role, I believe. The that
1: would role. have been incredible. But you can't shoot Jimmy Stewart in the face.
2: No. I think so. You just great, can't. That Jimmy Stewart turned it down. Apparently over the strong language, too, which what a what a what a guy.
1: What a mensch. Am uh, I allowed to say that? I think so. Yeah, sure.
2: Did you know that Faye Dunaway and William Holden had clashed previously on the Towering Inferno?
1: I did not. I'm sure she was blamed for it.
2: He was upset because she was always taking time away from the set to deal with her hair and put on her makeup and take phone calls. So um, at one point, uh, uh, you know, in a very rational response to that, he uh, pushed her against a wall (laughs) and threatened her and yelled her and said, if you don't get your act together, he'd put her through the wall.
1: Cool. So she's like a beautiful actor whose whole currency is beauty. And he hates that because he looks like an old boot. (laughs) And it doesn't matter what his face is. That's cool.
2: Uh, The control room and news studio scenes were filmed at CTV Studios in Toronto. It wasn't CTV at the time, but I think the whole thing was filmed in Toronto, or most of it.
1: Oh my goodness, do we love to point out when Canada's involved.
2: (laughs) Uh, What else? Some cast notes. Uh, Holden, uh, as you mentioned, was pretty... A very well-known actor. He was in Sunset Boulev- Boulevard, Bridge over the River Kwai, The Wild Bunch. He was also best man at Ronald Reagan's wedding.
1: Well, that so says they, a lot, doesn't it? It
2: does say a lot. <laughs> Faye Dunaway, of course, um, was in tons of great stuff. Though had a like reputation as a difficult woman on set, but all from like male directors. Like Roman Polanski called her a giant ass in the press about working with her in Chinatown. So I feel like a lot of the criticism of Faye Dunaway at the time has aged very well. Yes, it's of... come
1: from really great sources. <laughs> Jeez.
2: But must have been very hard at the time. For um, sure. I guess they, they, um, their note was she couldn't have any sympathy in her character portrayal. She had to be as cold and heartless as possible.
1: Great direction. Don't, <laughs> don't be a person. Jacob. I would like you to go to your window, and uh-huh. open it,
2: Uh-huh.
1: and I want you to say, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm going to deal with it in a rational and healthy way."
2: It's still pretty cold out here, Tara. It's, <laughs> it's snowing. I don't think I can open the window right now. The pipes might freeze. Can, why don't you go? Can you go outside into the park, and run up to as many people as you can, and tell them you're mad as hell, and you're not going to take it. Just just like spit and breathe into their face
1: yeah in the park i'll do all of those things (laughs) sounds really great um where can we find you on the old twit box
2: uh people can come say hi to me at rwj boon b-o-o-n
1: at boon like the wine not like the wine
2: no not like the wine (laughs) (laughs) that has an e that's an easy way to remember Uh, it not like the wine
1: there you go and you can find me at thornyhfx if you would like and you can find the show at box bylines and we'll be back next week Mm -hmm. with something more contemporary
2: yeah a little more lighthearted
1: a little bit bit. alright Jacob have a great week Tara you too alright right, bye